Super Talk Mississippi media production. Come see your locally owned and operated Linton Glass for all your glass needs. No matter what glass you need to replace, you can count on Linton Glass. Call us today at 601-835-4336 or find us on the web at lintonglass.com. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder and fine music. Welcome back Rhino. Howdy howdy. Well you had a bit of a few days off there huh? Extended. Use them or lose them. I needed that, though. That was great to decompress and not do anything productive for a prolonged period of time. <laughs> it's it's good fuel for the soul, is it not? Well, and a little peek behind the curtain. When when life behind the board is on such a rigid schedule, Yeah, and th- there is no, oh, I'm, I'm running a little bit late, traffic's tough, or uh, the cat got sick. No, like, the start time is the start time, and somebody has to be in this seat. So... Being able to unplug and not have to follow any kind of schedule is nice sometimes. You know, that is the one thing that is probably not widely understood uh, about this job that uh, certainly has hit me upside the head. That is, at 10 o'clock... You better be in that seat. It don't wait, does it? You can't say, I'll be there in a minute. The uh, most I can give you is six seconds. <laughs> you better be a ready and a raring to go, as we are here today. Beautiful spring day out there. Nice. A little weather moving in to central Mississippi, at least. It looks like on Friday. Little yeah, the, uh, the weather app says the next expected precipitation is... Two inches on Friday for central Mississippi. Two inches? Well, 1.9 inches, but yeah, two inches. Dang. That would be a bit of a deluge. That is a bunch. We've had enough. I'm tired of it. Golly. Well, I was off Friday and played a little golf, marathon of golf (laughs) up in West Point, Old Waverly, Mossy Oak, fabulous courses, always a lot of fun. A couple of members of our regular group there. One has a cottage at Mossy Oak and the other uh, a uh, cabin, as I think they are referred to at West Point. And we had 12, I believe, and had a good time. It's a gaggle of golfers. We had a gaggle for sure, and even us old guys, we played 36 holes, two rounds of 18. Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I got up there after the show Thursday. 
but the uh, the guys uh, that that came earlier in the day did complete 18 holes. Uh, pardon me, uh, 36 holes on Thursday, and then we continued that into Friday, Saturday, 18 on Sunday. Back home, good to be here. It is tax day. You got your taxes done. I'm reminded of the uh, Rumsfeld letter. I'm seeing if I can find it. Remember <laughs> when he sent that? Like in 2014, he sent a letter to the IRS basically saying, I filed my taxes. I don't know if I underpaid or overpaid because it's so freaking hard to understand this stuff. <laughs> by the way, my taxes were signed by my wife, and she doesn't understand whether or not we overpaid or underpaid. If you have a problem, contact my accountant. I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, that, that's a letter Ronald, Donald Rumsfeld sent to the IRS almost a decade ago. Yeah. No doubt that is the exactly the case. It has become more complicated than ever before. I don't think there's any question about that, uh, our taxes. So today is tax due date because yesterday, first the 15th fell on the weekend. Correct. And as we discussed last week, Rather than pushing it to Monday, which is what you would think would have occurred, because yesterday was Emancipation Day, celebrated by Washington, D.C., where the Internal Revenue Service is located, it was pushed to today, the 18th. So taxpayers across the nation are racing to get their 1040s in and beat the, the old IRS tax deadline. However, their payments, now part of the highest sustained tax burden in American history, still can't keep pace with the spending spree up there in Washington. Got a few statistics for you you might find of interest. Washington will collect 36000 $313 on average per household in tax revenues. This includes federal taxes, and remember that business taxes, sub-S, pass-through organizations, income is passed through, and so they pay taxes as individuals. Thirty-six grand a, he- a household, not a head, a household, on average. However, Washington will spend... $46,834 per household. dollars $10,000 more. 30% roughly more than what you pay is what they're spending. That produces, of course, $10,000 deficit is another way to look at it per household. Already, debt held by the public is a staggering $194,000 per household. Here's the question. Are you getting your money's worth? No. Forty-six dollars 46000 per household. Just imagine what would happen if you could keep more of your money. Spend it as you see fit. And despite these record revenues, we're still swimming in red ink. 
It is incredible. $4,800 more per household is being collected by the federal government than before the pandemic. And that's without any substantial changes in the tax code. We're still under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the so-called Trump tax cuts, passed in 2017. 4800 bucks. However, <laughs> spending has increased $6,300 more per household over the same period, essentially four years. So they're getting 4800 bucks more from each household than pre-pandemic. But spending $6,300 more. But the Democrats tell us, Joe Biden, those rich people aren't paying their fair share. We got to get more, 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 more money. His proposed tax hike, did the math on this, <laughs> this is the one in his budget that thankfully didn't pass, wouldn't pass because we have a Republican House that's blockading it. It would increase taxes by $9,000 per household over the next decade, at least. Unbelievable. So you'd have to be a fool to think your taxes ain't going up. You'd have to be a fool. The Treasury has uh, recently revealed the magnitude of the spending binge. It's up 13% over the same period last year. And again, even though politicians, Democrats in particular, even Donald Trump, many Republicans say, can't touch Social Security and Medicare. Okay. Costs are up 10% versus last year. Medicaid up 8%. Interest cost up. You ready for this one? 40%. We're on a run rate where our interest will be some 600, probably closer to $700 billion this fiscal year. Do not be surprised, folks, if you don't have a trillion-dollar interest tab in 2024. Do not be surprised. A trillion dollars for interest Just for perspective, Social Security, the number one spending line item in the entire federal budget, is $1.2 trillion. Next, interest, $1 trillion. But we don't have a spending problem. $1 trillion. It's insanity, and nobody will talk about it. Can't touch this, can't touch that, can't touch Everybody's got pet projects. So you know what happens? Nothing. When we come back, I'll share with you what House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has proposed to get a a debt ceiling deal done. You know, that's right around the corner. John Caldwell at 1037, coming right back. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
Welcome back, everyone. Middays from the Element Well Studios. So, Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy did offer a plan where he would agree to increasing the debt ceiling for one year in exchange for some reasonable spending cuts. He called them responsible and sensible. The White House won't talk to him. Basically says it's got to be a no-strings-attached debt limit increase. And McCarthy says that won't work in the House. So we're at a bit of an impasse. And what he's offered is honestly minimal relative to what needs to happen to truly rein in the reckless spending, get control of our deficit, if not totally drive it uh, to zero, which should be the goal, to at least break even revenues relative to spending. So he's offered things like just canceling Biden's plan to forgive student debt. I think that's the top line item, if I'm not mistaken. $600 billion, depending on how it's calculated. And then all this unspent COVID money, just to essentially rescind that. Sitting out there, appropriated, rescind that, not allow it to be spent. Imposing work requirements on various welfare programs. The idea being that Folks, uh, fewer folks would be eligible for them. Therefore, the spending would go down on those programs. But there's just no interest whatsoever. Any any discussion of reducing spending, let's be clear on this, unless that spending is on defense is a non-starter for Democrats. The only thing they will consider cutting spending on in the entire federal budget is defense, which is 15% of the total federal budget, sitting at about $800 billion. That's the only thing that they will consider. The 15% of discretionary spending of total spending that is is discretionary spending on non-defense purposes, they won't hear it. Can't touch it. And then, of course, there's no interest on the part of Democrats to reforming any of the uh, mandatory spending programs, Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, SNAP, number of other financial aid programs. There's no interest whatsoever in touching that. That's 70%, 71 now, when you add debt interest, which you have to pay. If you default on that, honestly, the entire global economy collapses because that means the U.S. failed to meet its obligations. So that's where we stand. So, And what bothers me about this, Rhino, is that even on the Republican side, we got to rein in that reckless spending. Okay, what? And you'll get 
this list from McCarthy, which is reasonable as a starter, but it's infinitesimal compared to the deficit and the debt. It's really nothing. But it's better than nothing, okay? But nothing in the scheme of things and what needs to be done. I think most reasonable... Well, it can't be nothing. If it were truly nothing, why wouldn't the Democrats go, that's fine? That's true. So the talk of, let's look at it, the talk of canceling Biden's student debt cancellation plan. Just pulling that out. Nope, can't do that. The talk of, it might hurt their political chances. Yes, the talk of work requirements. Can't do that. That might hurt their political chances. Right. And then defunding the 87,000 IRS agents, which was included in the Inflation Reduction Act. Can't do that. Some money in there for that. Uh, rescinding, this just doesn't make any sense to me. you got all this COVID money sitting out there that hasn't been spent. It's like $150 billion, and I, I say that as if it's pocket change. Well, and unfortunately, when you're dealing with multi-trillion dollar budgets and deficits and debt, it kind of is. But again, it is an attempt. So I applaud the speaker for that. It's an attempt in the right direction. But it falls way short of what needs to be done but so here we are at an impasse, a showdown. The president, the White House, will not negotiate, will not discuss it, will not talk. And but so Biden was going to be the one to reach across the aisle. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I feel like this is a fair offer. They also want to cap the growth of spending at one percent annually. Over ten years for the for the discretionary portion of spending, that'd be defense, all the government apparatus. It uh, that excludes the mandatory spending of Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, the various welfare programs that are established by statute, and of course debt interest. Want to cap that discretionary portion, which is thirty percent of total spending. Nope, can't do that. Can't cap it. So I think there's some weakness in that McCarthy's not distinguishing between defense and social welfare. It's what it's called in the budget. Literally, it's called social welfare. And so you got a big chunk of Republicans that won't go for cutting the Pentagon's budget, especially with China intensifying, ratcheting up its ambitions saber-rattling in Taiwan, if that's straight, Rhino, between Taiwan, isn't it called the Taiwanese Strait, I believe, if that's straight, separates that body of water, the island of Taiwan and the mainland of China is somehow blockaded and shut down, that has global economic implications. You think your 401k plan has taken a hit the last year or so because of Biden's ridiculous inflationary policies. You just wait to see what happens if that straight shuts down. I'm not predicting it is, but they have been conducting exercises. And Taiwan says it's ramping up, ready to defend. A lot of commerce 
occurs in that body of water. The uh, I don't know. I'd feel a lot more comfortable with defense spending, especially can especially revolving around the Pentagon, if the Pentagon could just pass a freaking audit. That's true. I'm with you. So I'm not in the camp that says we absolutely cannot cut defense spending, by the way. I think I mean, is, is it really that hard to write in legalese terms that, okay, Pentagon, you can't have any more money until you get at least a C on the freaking audit? You're right, because they have failed. They cannot account for literally trillions of, in, of spending. Just burning money. Yeah. So I agree. I, it, it needs to be scrubbed as well. It needs to be deeply analyzed. And the American people are entitled to see an accountability of their spending. I, I'm, I don't care if it's defense or not. While I certainly agree that is, in my view, the primary, the top function of government is clearly to defend against bad foreign actors, which is what our military is, is established to do, commissioned to do. Doesn't mean you just got an open checkbook that you can spend as you see fit. No, there needs to be some accountability, some transparency. Completely agree with that. I mean, it's we're what five years away from the report that said the Pentagon lost twenty one trillion dollars that couldn't account for. Can't find it. Right. Totally agree. But you don't not million with an M, not billion with a B, twenty one trillion with a T dollars unaccounted for. Shame on Republicans for not speaking up about that, calling for a full investigation, full audit, before they sign on to increasing their budget in Donald Trump. Let's be honest. He brags an awful lot about how he pumped up spending on the military. I rebuilt our military. He'll tell you that. It was decimated before I got here. We got them the finest airplanes and ships and military armaments and assets that money could buy. And that's true, and yes, it did need to be modernized, but is there money going out another door somewhere that we don't, to your point, that we don't need? We're stepping aside for a break right here in the Element Well Studios. When we return, it's Commissioner of the Northern District for Transportation, John Caldwell. Stay with us. Started today. Morning, it's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. We're gonna hit this town, been a long time coming, been a long hard drive, gonna smoke some, gonna drink some, gonna find a little trouble if now we're gonna make some. In the Element Well Studios, it's middays. Gerard and Rhino joining us now, the Commissioner of Transportation for Mississippi's Northern District, John Caldwell. Good morning, Commissioner. Thanks for joining us today, sir. Good morning, Gerard. It's always good to be here. It's been a while. Yes, sir, it has. So the legislature all buttoned up for 2023. How'd it go for you? Well, I call it the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, the good was the people involved uh, from the governor on down. It was really good. Um, actually, Senator McMahon, I'm in his district right now in Tupelo, and uh, Senator Branning, uh, 
Chairman Busby in the House and and uh, Chairman White, Chairman Lamar. They were just excellent to work with, good people, and uh, that's a shining light in, in Mississippi government uh, from the from the Republican slate we have running this year to uh, down to the community stakeholders. We got good people trying to do good work. Uh, the bad is the process. I mean. When you come down to the last five days and, you know, six people get in a room to try to find to make a decision, that's kind of disappointing. Um, and the ugly is the premise that we have a user pay system uh, that we don't have. I mean, we, we have fuel tax, but that's not sufficient to fund the transportation department, which leaves us uh, at the end of the session just hoping for a little something to come out of the session. So, Commissioner, when you say not sufficient, to fund the transportation department, that to me implies some sort of shortfalls in in, in services and in investment in in new infrastructure, perhaps modernization of existing infrastructure, roads, bridges, etc. What do you mean exactly by that? Is that is that what that means? Well, that we don't have enough money to yeah, do some of those projects. It doesn't imply shortfalls. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't imply shortfalls. There are shortfalls. I mean, we have. Uh, been estimated at $400 million a year that we need just to maintain the existing highways that we have, uh, which we're not getting. I mean, so that's a, that's a real number. And it's real. Uh, I mean, when, when we get through with uh, the session, you know, we get a lot of calls. Well, and the, the term I'm hating to hear now, I'm about ready to block that term on my phone if I could. It says, <laughs> now that you have all that money, uh, you know, now that you have all that money, can we can we fix this highway? And, and and you can't fix that highway because we don't have all that money. I mean that that money that we were uh, assigned this year is specifically for capacity projects. North Mississippi, in particular, got enough money for part of one highway. And if that's good enough for folks, I mean, I, I'm just not going to break my heart, pat myself on the back on that one. I mean, we got we got a lot to do, and and there's a lot of shortfalls. So, yeah, and so what I really meant to say is it implies that there's some sort of shortfalls with respect to uh, needs, if not money, not monetary, not, not referring to that specifically, but rather that there are some things that are, are deemed necessary for transportation in our state, transportation, roadways, bridges, et cetera, everything that your department is responsible for that we can't get done because we don't have enough money. Uh, that's what I think I'm hearing you say. That's that's exactly right. And some of it is, is basic maintenance, but mm-hmm. basic maintenance is safety. I mean, if you don't have a safe road to travel, uh, that's an issue. If you have intersections that we don't have time or the money to hire engineers and, the, and the contractors to fix those dangerous intersections, that's a problem. That is a shortfall. Yeah. And so that, that's something that we have to address, and we have to address it quickly, or we're just going to continue to get worse. So. From a revenue perspective, do you have any thoughts about how we could increase revenues for this purpose? Well, I do have a lot of thoughts about uh, increasing revenue, and, and I think there's several me- mechanisms out there that, that have been discussed. But, uh, you know, we got to get serious about it and quit. You know, it's, it's more than, you know, talk show mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, we got to get in a room and start saying, what are we willing to do? What are we willing to accept? What are we willing to spend? You know, what level of service do we want our roads to have? And uh, we haven't done that yet. We, we've we kind of touched the surface of that. And, again, going back to the good people, we got good people that are, that are starting to recognize the, the need. And uh, the problem is we got more money than ever, but more money than ever doesn't equal more work than ever. 
you know, I mean, Joe Biden, you talked about some of the taxes. The, rev- the revenue is more money than ever. Mm-hmm. Right now, we it, don't have more work than ever. Yeah, and the st- it's certainly the state level. I just attended an event and uh, that had some legislators that represent my county uh, speak, and also the lieutenant governor, Delbert Hoseman, and, and he was, in fact, sharing some of that data about how our rainy day fund now is maxed out, $700 million plus dollars. Uh, we continue to exceed revenue estimates. We got a billion dollars of cash, um, and and so we're just in good fiscal shape as a state. Do you think that the state, that the legislature, should tap some of that excess, some of that surplus, and steer it to transportation? Sure, and and they they are to some degree, but that's not the solution. One time money is not the solution. Okay. For example, we got $45 million in one-time money last year to do overlay projects. Mm-hmm. We didn't get that money again this year. Right. That money is not back. Was that federal so that's or state? $45 million less this year. Was that state? Okay. That's $45 million that we had last year from the state that we're not getting back this year for overlay. Okay. So you – know, um, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you indicated, you, you, you made the point that the, the – um, Pretty much the exclusive source of your revenue, is it not, is fuel taxes. That's right. And, of course, when they did the fuel tax uh, addition, the additional fuel tax in 1987, people were used to getting about 18 miles a gallon on their car. Now they're getting about 36 miles a gallon on their car, and we pay it by the gallon. So um, that's gonna that reduces our revenue. Yeah. Uh, we also get people that are working from home, less travel, reduces revenue. People bringing electric cars in. They're, they're doing electric cars, so they're not paying a fuel tax. reduces revenue. So uh, the 87 highway program was done at a cost of $1.3 billion. And, uh, you know, that was 36 years ago. Ironically, it took 36 years after Eisenhower put in the Federal Highway Act. Uh, I think it was 1956. Uh, 36 years later, they called it finished. But that, they built a U.S. interstate system. You know, in 87, they did a program that built a four-lane highway system in Mississippi, we need to start looking in a in a broader, bigger way of how we're going to face the future in transportation in Mississippi. Are you a proponent of increasing the fuel tax, the excise tax? Well, we need to look at every avenue of revenue. You can't fix a road with good looks and charm. It is going to be a tax of some kind, of some measure. So when everybody's out there and all these Republicans in the supermajority are talking about what we're going to do going forward, we can't fix your road without taxes. And so whether it's a fuel tax, whether it's a user tax, whether it's a wheel tax, uh, I'm not a fan of the mileage tax option that people are talking about. I think that's very intrusive and 100% against the mileage tax. But we can't fix it on good looks and charm. It's going to have to be revenue and revenue is taxes. Now, I'm a big fan of doing away with the income tax. I don't think the income tax ought to be used as as our mechanism to fund roads and highways. Uh, we need to look at more of a user-based system, and uh, I'm open to a lot of discussions. Do, have you talked to, I assume you have, talked to members of the legislature, statewide leaders about this? Yes. And, you know, the, the discussions are, are very uh Friendly, very, very uh, open, and, and people acknowledge the need. Uh, trying to address the the need at that scope and that level kind of 
makes people balk a little bit. But um, I mean, when you start talking about four hundred million dollars a year just for maintenance, you know, and we're we're haggling and scraping at the last week of a session trying to get a little extra money, four hundred million for maintenance additional is what we need. What our uh, estimators have figured, and that doesn't count all the inflation that's coming on. So it's going to be more than that. Yeah. So yes, we have talked. Uh, there's a lot of open discussion, and we just need to make it more than discussion. We need to make it a plan, and we need to make it something we can promote and we can all get together and and advocate for and and improve that infrastructure do you think there may be more of an appetite for some sort of tax increases increase in revenue allocation however it's achieved when we uh, seat a new class in the legislature and and uh, we're, we're four years removed from the next election cycle uh, maybe those kinds of controversial issues are, are more likely to be taken up early. I'm not a fan of an appetite for a new tax <laughs> just because of that nature of that sentence. Yeah. But you said we need uh, revenue. There's no appetite for a new tax. You said we need revenue, so we though. Do need to av- yeah, we have to advocate for a better highway system and a better road, and it will include revenue, and revenue is taxes. But I don't want to go front. Well, let's just go get a new tax because it's the first year of an election year. Well, I'm just uh, saying I mean, that there, there. We, we need. Yeah, there's more of an inclination to take that up. That's all I'm saying. So, but I get oh, it. Need more revenue. Yes, well, sir. Okay. Appreciate it, John. Thanks, and thanks for your service to the state of Mississippi, sir. Really appreciate you coming on, John Caldwell, Commissioner. Of Mississippi Thank you. Thanks Georgia. for having me. Yes, sir. We're stepping aside. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well Studios, after the top of the hour, that's when we will share the news with you from Fox and Supertalk. It's Alex Epstein, Fox News commentator and net zero critic. He's going to be on the program talking about fossil fuels, climate change, and the need for oil and gas to power our world. Looking forward to that interview. And then at 12.05, it's John Arthur Eves and uh, and son. They're going to be uh, they're from the Eves Law Firm talking about a, a program that brings solar power to school districts through federal grants and tax credits. So, uh, so hmm, interesting. On the C Spire text line, I did see that somebody posed a question. I'm looking forward for it. Yeah, here you go. What is the lottery money used for? So uh, we'll explain that. First $80 million of net proceeds, essentially net profit, generated by the Mississippi Lottery Corporation in a fiscal year, 
is in fact transferred into the state highway fund. The excess is allocated to the education enhancement fund. So in the years that the lottery has been operating, that's since November of 2019, the full year, so that would be fiscal year 20, so uh, when we started, that was a part year, for the full two years of 21 and 22, approaching 23, the fiscal year ends June 30th, the lottery produces greater than $80 million of net proceeds, so the maximum allowed by law to go to the state highway fund is achieved. But just keep in mind that that's less than 1%, or pardon me, 10% of total uh, spending on transportation. So it, it certainly helps, and that was the by design. But it's um, it's not the answer. It's not the cure. It's not going to generate what what John say we need four hundred million more a year, I believe. Right. So right. there you go. Eighty million from the lottery closes that hole a little bit, but that still leaves you at least according to Commissioner Caldwell's assessment three hundred and twenty million dollars shortfall. In in um, as he says, in in order to properly maintain our roads and bridges, and to invest in new roads and bridges. So I'm certainly no expert on transportation infrastructure. And at this point, would have to accept the analysis performed by others who are a great deal more proficient in those matters. But if it's true, though, that we're going to fall behind because we don't have enough revenue I don't see any other way to achieve that other than to raise taxes, especially since, under the, at least under the current model, operating model of the state, as you heard the commissioner say when I asked the question, pretty much the exclusive source of revenue for the state uh, highway department, the Department of Transportation, is in fact the excise tax at the pump we pay when we purchase fuel. So... And then, of course, the other major source is the federal government. And there's all sorts of uh, rules there with respect to when the federal government provides matching funds or funds for certain projects that uh, where the cost is not totally borne by the state. But nonetheless, I'm not sure there's another way to get revenue other than to increase taxes unless there's an increase in usage since it is an excise tax, meaning we buy more fuel. And so what the commissioner argues, and I think he's right on this, is that we have much more fuel-efficient vehicles than we had. We don't travel as much. I don't know. I haven't seen the the stats on that specifically. I would be curious to see um, with respect to the excise tax. I mean, you could certainly look at revenue comparisons, but I don't have any data that says here's how much fuel we consume on an annual basis and sort of what that trend line looks like. That's where you could know. And then you have to know the number of vehicles as well. I mean, there's some other factors you'd have to know. There could be an increase or a decrease just based on the number of vehicles, a, a population, other factors. But nonetheless, 
if that is trending downward, sure, that means we're going to produce less revenue if we're consuming fewer gallons of fuel. But this is a, a problem that's not going away, that is for sure, and it will get a lot more attention, I think. And speaking of fuel, Alex Epstein, Fox News commentator and Net Zero critic, is uh, scheduled to be on with us after the break, which is upon us. And that means it's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. We're in the Element Well Studios, coming right back. to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone hour two of middays live from the element wealth studios joining us now fox news commentator alex epstein he wrote a book called fossil future he talks a lot about fossil fuels climate change the need for oil and gas and he is a strong critic of this pursuit of net zero alex thanks for joining middays my pleasure thanks for having me so, uh, Alex, I've read uh, some of your book, and, and I've, I've certainly seen you discuss it, seen you interviewed uh, uh, quite a bit. What's going on here? <laughs> What's going on with what, in particular? <laughs> well, we've got uh, a president and uh, uh, many in his party and, and just a, a lot of other anti-fossil fuels people, high-profile people, that just want to totally... Um, push us out of the fossil fuels business, we're not ready for that yet. Well, there's really been this shockingly uniform commitment among governments, among corporations, among financial institutions, at least with the corporations and financial institutions and their rhetoric, uh, that the number one goal of the world should be to be what's called net zero by 2050. That essentially means very little fossil fuel use. So we're rapidly eliminating fossil fuels, which provide 80% of the world's energy, which are currently still growing, in a world where most people have way too little energy by our standards. You know, 3 billion people use less electricity than a typical American refrigerator. And so it should be really odd to people that this is happening, and we should really ask, why is it that our number one goal is eliminating CO2 emissions at all costs? And my view is... The number one goal around the world should be making human life better, so what I call advancing human flourishing. And that's absolutely not consistent with eliminating CO2 emissions in the next 27 years. The far more important thing is to give more people more energy, and that's why I say we actually need more fossil fuels. Whatever warming the CO2 emissions cause, uh, we can deal with that pretty easily insofar as there are negatives, but we can't deal with lack of energy. Yeah, and, you know, something that I've always thought, is a bit at odds is uh, this push, uh, certainly from left-leaning economic policy, which I think hurts prosperity. Prosperity is the key to producing 
uh, fuel energy that we need for society, but doing it in a clean way. It seems like it's the more impoverished nations, the nations that are less wealthy, that, that tend to operate in a more dirty fashion. Yeah, that that's true. So, I mean, in general, prosperity makes everything better. If you're really thinking of better from a human perspective, even climate. So when we're prosperous, we actually emit more CO2 emissions than when than when people are poor. But overall, life is far better, including cleaner, but also the climate is far safer because whatever changes occur in climate, which haven't been that significant thus far, our ability to deal with climate changes and climate danger is amazing. So, you know, we used to have droughts kill millions of people a year frequently, and now the the rate of drought-related deaths has gone down by 99% in the past 100 years, and a lot of it is because we use energy, specifically fossil fuels, to irrigate, to move crops from one place to another. So I really think of, we're thinking of fossil fuels as something that ruined climate, and actually fossil fuels made us a lot safer from climate. Yeah, no doubt about it. So when the president at his State of the Union address, when he made the comment, hey, we, I'm encouraging the energy companies to explore and produce more oil and gas, that we're going to need this stuff for at least another 10 years. What were your thoughts about that? The 10 years is not an exciting time horizon <laughs> there. You're going to you're going to get destroyed in 10 years. Like, oh, who 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 wants to work in an industry that's going to be destroyed in right. in 10 years? Um, so, it, I, I think he it was kind of laughed at, but it was re- a real sign of his whole his whole focus has been, you know, as he put it in his campaign, I guarantee you we're going to end fossil fuels. So everything has been geared toward eliminating fossil fuels. But then what happened is we had an energy crisis. And so it didn't for prices were going up. And so voters didn't like that. And so then he just made up this story that he hadn't done anything against fossil fuels, even though that had been a core campaign promise to rapidly eliminate them. And so we see moves uh, by the government. Uh, I think it's the EPA in particular recently that's, that's making proposals down at the agency level uh, in anticipation, expecting, pushing for half of the new cars sold in this country by 2030 to be EVs. They see that as kind of the, the prime producer of CO2 and, and that which has got to be changed. And then I believe 60-something percent, 64 percent by 2032. Is this tenable? Is this practical? It's really a shockingly destructive idea. I mean, if if EVs are so great, then let people buy them. Let producers be free to produce them without subsidies and let people be free to buy them and see what happens. And more power to them if they're actually cost-effective for people. What what we found is that even with huge subsidies, they're not cost-effective for the typical person. They're about 6% of current sales. And so the idea, and, and we're already having grid problems with reliability due to the anti-fossil fuel policy. So what we're doing is we're saying let's force a technology that's not cost effective and places an enormous burden on a declining grid. So an enormous new demand for reliable electricity when we're decreasing the supply. I mean, what could go wrong? We are, I live in California. We're already seeing it even on a small scale, but California is nothing compared to what Biden is proposing in terms of destructive. Right, right. So I believe I got that right. Isn't, uh, isn't that the, uh, the goal, 50% by 2030? 20, the, the, the number has been 67 by 2032. So okay, okay. 10 times more uh, sales 
of this stuff, but it's, it's really, it would be bad even if we had enough electricity, but we don't have enough electricity. So part of EVs competing on a free market should be people advocating for expanding our electric generation capacity, but instead they're advocating for it to decline and then putting way more demand and also, you know, shutting down gas stoves. So you can be forgiven for having these conspiracy beliefs that people just want to control you because they're just putting everything on the grid and then making the grid totally impotent to actually provide electricity. Yeah. But we don't seem to hear a lot of complaints about uh, China, which produces way more CO2 than this country does, India. Well, in a sense, yes. But so China... You know, China is less per person, yeah. uh, but it's more total, but it's more it's more people. I mean, China is bad in a lot of ways, but it makes sense that they're using fossil fuels. So it's just, what part of what's wrong about the situation is there's just this total blindness, this idea that, oh, if we don't use as much fossil fuel and if we offshore manufacturing in China, which uses coal, then we're somehow, quote, doing something uh, versus recognizing that way at fossil fuels – uh, are uniquely cost effective and you know around the world and so that's why china is using them and if you actually want to substitute for or replace fossil fuels in the long term you actually need to develop a superior replacement you can't just punish americans and then expect the rest of the world to follow suit should we be including nuclear more robustly in our overall energy matrix yeah, I mean, I think of it as, for sure, nuclear has amazing potential. I think I think of it as it really needs to be liberated, or I often call it decriminalized, because it's just <laughs> it's so difficult and costly to build. So you really need radical reform on the policy. I mean, my, my view is you always want to set things up so that we can have energy just like we have computers, right, where we have a market where producers are free to produce the things they think are best and then consumers can choose. You know, insofar as we have electricity markets, we want it to be so that everyone, I believe everyone should have to provide reliable electricity and then the ones who can do it the best do it. But part of that is with nuclear, you need to change the, the regime that makes it almost impossible to build. Because right now nuclear is just totally crippled by believe, government. believe Germany just shut down their last reactor. Yeah, so they, they're, they're a real model of what not to do. Right. And... Yet they seem to be an inspiration. For years, when I was getting started on this issue, people were saying, oh, look at Germany, you're wrong, look at Germany. Said, look, <laughs> Germany is not going well. And now it's obviously not going well, but they haven't, they haven't changed their model, unfortunately. Yeah. I just wonder why there's just not more talk about that. It seems like that's a practical solution. I know there's lots of other technology as well that's being developed that could uh, – truly take us to a renewable energy society, but we're just not ready for it yet. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think nuclear is good to single out because it's the only thing that's proven and that's reliable and that's scalable. You know, we have hydro for electricity, yeah. and but it doesn't scale. It can't exist everywhere in the world. You need places where you have rivers and you can have dams and that kind of thing. So... Yeah, nuclear should be singled out, and it's very revealing that the anti-fossil fuel movement has largely been an anti-nuclear movement, and I think it, it shows that it's not really about CO2, and I, I think mm. I talk about it in my book, Fossil Future, there's a deeper view that industry is bad, that energy is bad, and, and really that human impact on the planet is bad, and that, yeah. I think that's what's driving the, the leaders in the movement. They think it's bad for us to impact the planet, including the climate, and the energy, you know, CO2 from fossil fuels is just a convenient thing to focus on. Seems like it. Alex, appreciate you joining us. The book, uh, I've read it, what I've read so far is excellent and appreciate you uh, staying on this issue. Thank you. Thank you very much.
We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, now, on to the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. We're back with you in the Element Well Studios. Fossil Future, the name of Mr. Epstein's book. He's here with the Mississippi Center for Public Policy speaking at an event today talking about our need to continue to develop and produce fuels derived from fossil sources. Otherwise, we ain't going to be able to power our world in our nation, it's just stunning to me that the Biden administration and and the Democrats in general, the the green folks, don't seem to appreciate that reality and continue to push the nation and really just people, consumers, in a direction to which they object. EVs will really hit their stride when they make sense from a value perspective, just like anything else you buy. When the when the price is not markedly higher than a traditional gas-powered vehicle and the cost of operating isn't, and uh, I think more importantly, when the range is improved and you're not having to deal with the hassle of charging and figuring out do I have enough charge, enough battery, and where am I going to charge this thing, and how long is it going to take me, and all that? It's just inconvenient. So I mean, just look at the technological innovation of TVs and the growth of that market and the subsequent price drop that came with it. Yeah. I mean, in the grand scheme of thing, it wasn't all that long ago where you had to hit the hip for at least $1,000 to have a 50-inch TV. So true. I walked by one yesterday at Wally World for under 200 bucks. It's unbelievable. For a 50-inch LCD TV. Unbelievable. So guess what? They go off the shelves when that happens. Same thing will happen here. It's This is just the market at work. The market at work. We called it a few weeks ago. I can't take credit for it. It's from Steve Forbes. He referred to it as the innate genius of the American consumer. <laughs> That's what dictates... The winners and losers from a product and services perspective should not be government. And in fact, one of the proposals in McCarthy's debt ceiling plan is is to roll back lots of those those crazy green subsidies. Paul on the ceasefire text line puts it best. Honestly, the vast majority of all of us are green people. 
Anyone with intelligence knows we have to take care of the environment. So true. Democrats don't seem to think rationally is their problem. Uh, good good uh, way to put it there, Paul. I, I totally agree. It's It's no different than just by default labeling everyone on the right as a racist. Just by default. And the same things here. You hate the environment if you're on the right because you're using a little common sense. Hey, you can't just stop cold turkey, and you can't force these things on people they don't want. And, by the way, the science isn't totally settled. It's not 100% settled. And it doesn't help when you're lecturing people, scolding them, admonishing them, while you yourself live a life of luxury and spew more CO2 than all the rest of us combined. John Kerry, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Ed Markey, etc. As as long as they don't, the old rules for the not-for-me deal, right? As long as they don't follow their same guidance, the guidance that they preach at us, nobody takes them seriously. I think the other problem is nothing is ever good enough. That's so true. It's almost a test. How far can we go? Okay, we got that far. Let's go a little further sort of deal. I I agree with you. I I totally agree. That's how you wind up with scientists talking about how rice is a problem for climate change. Will you tell them about that? Scientists say that if the world wants to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, rice cannot be ignored because rice is to blame for around 10% of global emissions of methane, a gas that over two decades traps about 80 times as much heat as carbon dioxide. Oh, geez. Except it also feeds three-quarters of the world's population. And I believe has for quite some time. I mean, there are a lot of the population literally has been sustained by rice. But they never want to talk about the liquid oil lamps still used by billions of people because, like Alex was talking about, they don't have readily available energy. That's true. Never the health problems that. that are associated with burning oil lamps for light, the pollution caused by burning oil lamps for light, times two and a half billion people on the planet. So once again... I contend that prosperity, prosperity addresses those sorts of issues. It is our prosperity that has enabled us to produce way more energy today than we did a short 15, 20 years ago, but without emitting nearly the CO2. That's all a function of human innovation, prosperity. I mean, just the average vehicle's emissions today, nothing compared to what it was 25 years ago. And if that's the primary culprit, primary emitter, but this forcing, not only forcing, but bribing. Here's some you some credits to go out. And now we're learning that with all the stipulations, all the strings attached, you just about came for like two cars. I mean, I'm being a bit facetious, but not much. Qualify for the things, for the credits. Because of all the requirements of the source of materials and the battery and where they're manufactured. I mean, it was a series of conditions in order to receive those credits. 
I just wonder how many people are doing that. Will we get any data? And then what about the credits for buying electric appliances? Remember, that's supposed to be administered at the retail level in the states. Oh, you're buying that? Here's your credit. And and I'm pretty sure that's based on your household income. So, I mean, it's Home Depot checking your income? How is this working? Is it working? We never, we always pass those laws and never go back, do we, to measure them like we do in business. Because if you don't measure, you go bankrupt in business. When you fail at that, when you fail or a, a measure that gets passed fails or fails to achieve its stated objectives, whoever goes back and says it really didn't do that. You just rarely see that, do you? Where's the scorecard on what was done there? Who's who's calling up their their um, uh, their local companies to go replace the power panels in their houses, electrical panels? Remember that was something else eligible. Who's jumping on the the uh, the credits to install solar panels in their homes? The whole idea was here's you some money to stimulate that activity, that transition. Is that happening? Serious question for our audience. Any of you guys take advantage of that? Going to buy some electric appliances because you get credits? Have you gotten those credits? Added insulation in your home, upgraded your electrical panel, installed an electric uh, water heater. Also, that qualifies. Bought an electric vehicle. The only people I know that do that are fairly affluent, honestly. They're the only ones that could afford them. And Tesla just had a significant price decrease, I think two this year, to stimulate sales. I mean, and they're selling. He's he's having a fairly bumper year in that respect. But again, when government puts these laws in place like that, designed to influence behavior, I just always wonder, who's measuring that? Is this working? And then who's measuring how that affected CO2 output? Oh, look at all them hot water heaters that were, or water heaters, pardon me, that were purchased. Look how much we cut CO2 emissions in replacing the old gas-powered heaters. Who measures that? I don't know that they do. I honestly don't think so. I saw it. I've always had issues with that sort of stuff. They put these giant laws in place. Nobody ever follows up. Did we get our money's worth? Just kind of like the our first segment earlier today when we talked about how much money you're paying per household and how much money the government's spending per household. And are you getting your money's worth for that? Because you're each household's generating about a got a share, I should say, of about a ten thousand dollars a household of our deficit. We're stepping aside for a break right here. We're coming back with more. We got lots of texts. We'll get to those when we return in the Element Wealth Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk, Mississippi.
Shake, Sinora, shake your body liner. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake it all the time. Work, 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 Sinora, work your body liner. Work, 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 Sinora. We are back in the Element Wealth Studios. Watching the U.S. debt clock. Take away here, thirty-one trillion six ninety six forty-seven, and the fiscal cliff looms as talks between the White House and Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. That uh, he being the point man because the House, of course, is under Republican control, and they can't seem to get together. I mean, what he's asking for. Seems to be pretty reasonable to me. Cap spending at 2022 levels and 1% increase from that point forward and rescind the unspent COVID money, cancel student debt program, work requirements for certain welfare dollars. What's unreasonable about that? I mean, those those are the those are the main features of McCarthy's plan. I'm just not sure why that can't seem to get any traction, even a discussion. That would, he has been a little, I should say, um, unclear as to whether or not he would favor cuts to defense on the discretionary side, but he's made it clear no cuts to the mandatory spending. So, It's really not a great deal. I don't know why Joe Biden won't come to the table to negotiate. And all you get is a bunch of uh, of rhetoric, MAGA Republicans, you know, all that stuff, putting the the nation and the world at risk. I'll be blunt. If Speaker McCarthy continues in this direction, we are headed to a default, said Chuck Schumer. He slammed McCarthy, mocking his comparisons to Reagan, who spoke out against a debt default. Well, so has McCarthy. They can't seem to discern between the two. It's not just... It's just an attempt to try to rein in the spending to get control and to start bringing down the deficit decreasing the rate at which the debt is increased, because until you eliminate the deficit, debt keeps going up. Uh, A spokesperson from the White House says, MAGA House Republicans, they love that, don't they? MAGA House Republicans, they love to use it as as a pejorative. Can't even agree what they are holding the debt limit hostage over. That's not true says their proposals are all over the map, but they all have one thing in common, devastating cuts to programs that working families rely on to lower costs and make ends meet. No, it is you who can't really tell us what you're all about. What does that mean? Be specific. Devastating cuts to programs. It's always programs. Programs. The solution is a program. Working families. Our core problem is not enough families. Not enough traditional nuclear families. 
They don't want to address that. They make it sound like everybody's June and Ward Cleaver with the beaver and Wally sitting around the lunch table, the dinner table, eating roast beef or something. No, it's not like that. I wish it were, honestly. It was a much simpler time. We seem to be happier people. We lacked a lot of what we have today, but from a family unit perspective, that was front and center. You can't even feature mainstream families like that in television anymore, can you? You can't do it. It's always got to be something a little out there, something that's non-just traditional. Maybe I'm just old, being an old school guy here. You can't do that anymore. You get canceled. You can't You can't just sell beer with people that like to drink beer. You got to use people that probably don't even drink beer. The virtue signaling crap. So, just because you want to cancel the cancellation proposal of some 600 billion dollars of student debt, You want people to work, to earn, to qualify for certain welfare benefits. You want to rescind unspent COVID money. He ought to be all over that because he's told us the emergency's over. In fact, he went ahead and signed the bill doing such, declaring such. So why do we need more COVID money? It's sitting out there. So all all of those issues are the primary, make up the primary list that McCarthy has identified in in exchange for agreeing to raise the debt ceiling. I don't call that holding the debt ceiling hostage. I, I call that just smart business. He did, uh, delivered a speech yesterday. McCarthy did to the New York Stock Exchange. And he said they're going to put a bill on the table in the House to raise the debt ceiling, but for only one year and tied to these various spending cuts that I just enumerated. And he said that Joe Biden is not willing to negotiate in good faith, says he's misleading the public. It's true. He never talks about it. He never talks about the $31 trillion of debt. It's always Republicans, MAGA Republicans, want to end programs. I think people are struggling to find how those programs have reduced their cost of living since he's been in office. Whose cost of living has gone down? The data certainly doesn't suggest that. Well, it's getting closer and closer, folks. That's all I know. In the meantime, you know O'Reilly Gaines, the NCAA swimmer, on the program last week talking about the, uh, the rush of transgender protesters at a speech she was delivering. They rushed her while she was speaking at San Francisco State University. And uh, she spoke, she's speaking out for fairness in women's sports. 
So now the Biden administration has said that if a bill which is set to pass the House that would ban biological men from participating in women's sports, I don't know what the outcome will be in the Senate, controlled by the Democrats. Um, They may have a couple of defectors there that would keep it from passing. But nonetheless, the Biden administration has said it's DOA in the White House here. We're going to veto that, meaning he fully supports biological men competing in women's sports. So Miss Gaines, brave young lady that she is, is calling out President Biden. She says the president has declared that science, truth, and common sense no longer matter. In opposing this bill, President Biden is catering to a radical minority at the expense of women who were 51% of the population. You've made that point many times. It's such a a fractional share of the total population that we're catering to with just every policy, every bill. I saw where Loudoun County, Virginia, which seems to be ground, ground zero for critical race theory, being taught in schools, radical gender ideology. It's just a it's a very fluent area of the country that's just that's just uh, filled with left wing loons, honestly. More money than sense. Social justice activists galore. So now I saw where the district, the school district, has uh, agreed and passed a measure that would authorize creation of transgender bathrooms, an additional bathroom in the schools, at a cost, of course. This is what I've said before, is when people say, well, we just ought to have another category for sports competition. It costs money. So here we go, accommodating. I mean, how many people in a given school, how many kids are transgender? In a given school, such that we need a completely separate physical bathroom, how many people are going to use that on the basis that they are not a male or a female, or that they are biologically one way but identify as another, that's who would be suited for such a restroom. But we're going to spend money, and it's just disruptive on top of that. It's incredible. We're coming back with more here from the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live. On Super Talk Mississippi. You were the first thing that I thought of when I thought I drank you off my mind. When I get lost in so on the ceasefire text line, Rhino. First time we received a text from this member of our audience. You spoke earlier of being honest, in quotes. Must be tongue-in-cheek. You know that the debt limit is not, in all caps, about future spending. Rather, it's about previous debt. 
It's about pay the legal bills of the past years, not new debt in 2023. Indeed, you have been honest about Trump's $4 trillion of debt. It's paying on that debt. This is honoring financially the full faith and credit of the United States. Let's really be factual and honest about what the debt ceiling is and cut the moaning about the polarized rhetoric, Ken from Pearl. Well, first, Ken, I really don't need a lesson on how the federal budget works, <laughs> federal deficit, federal spending. Sounds like Ken's in, just upset that you don't like Bill Joe Biden. Encumbrances. I, I fully, totally, 100% understand and appreciate that. What Kevin McCarthy knows is what all other reasonable, clear-thinking, clear-eyed people know, is that this president and the Democrats have zero interest in cutting spending. Zero. In fact, the only interest they have is to increase spending. And then they push this narrative that we can pay for all this by taxing those dirty, greedy, rich people. They don't pay their fair share, which is completely wrong. The math never, ever, ever works. But nobody ever goes back to check it. That's the problem. So what Kevin McCarthy's doing is he knows that our ridiculous deficits, now slated to be $1.5 trillion this year, based on where we are year to date, interest through the roof, debt piling up north of $31 trillion, he knows and understands we got to do something for the good of the country. And because the Democrats, led by Joe Biden, refuse to even talk about reigning in spending, refuse to talk about anything reasonable, he knows that he's got to take the only possible opportunity he has to have a productive discussion and to get both parties to the table to hammer out a plan to get the damn spending down, which is what produced this ridiculous inflation we're all incurring. That's just economics 101. So he is leveraging the only possible opportunity he has to just get their attention. It's, it's kind of like you're... You're calling someone to address a critical issue, and they just don't want to deal with it. But it's a critical issue, and maybe you finally say, look, your house is on fire. Can you come home to check on it? Oh, yeah, I'm coming right away. That's kind of what's going on. It's sad that you have to do that. Nobody's talking about defaulting on the debt. I fully understand that, and so does Kevin McCarthy. We have to pay prior obligations, and any default on the debt would be detrimental to the nation and the world. No doubt about it. And it would have a negative impact on the dollar. And I'm a big believer in King Dollar. It's in our best interest for it to remain such. So I differ with you there, Ken. I appreciate what you're saying, and that's the, by the way, that is just the Democrat talking point right there, isn't it? MAGA Republicans, they want to default on the debt. 
This would be catastrophic. Armageddon. They do every single day. But but what they won't acknowledge is, no, it's your ridiculous, radical spending that's killing us. Stop it. If I'm yelling, yeah, I intend to, because I'm representing hundreds of millions of people who all want to deliver that message. Stop it. You got a stupid president that brags about, I cut the deficit more than any other president to $1.5 trillion. I'm not as bankrupt as I used to be. I'm not as overdrawn as I used to be. You're still overdrawn. You're still sucking financially. How else do you get their attention, Ken? Help us understand that. What should they do? Because they won't listen. They have no interest in talking about it. Because they're selfish damn politicians. That's the bottom line, right? You're shaking your head. Is that not the bottom line? Yep. Selfish politicians. All I care about is my cushy gig. The hell with everybody else. Whatever keeps me in there, that's all that matters. I can't live outside this bubble where my every whim is catered to. Can't live outside of that. Hey, driver, come pick me up. Bring me some food. We're stepping aside for a break. It's Fox News, Super Talk News, and then John Arthur Eves, Jr., and the third in the Element Well Studios. Get ready. Get ready. To go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi live from the Element Well Studios. Hour three of the program. Joining us now, John Arthur Eves Jr. and John Arthur Eves the third from the Eves Law Firm. Gentlemen, welcome to Middays. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You bet. So you guys are involved in uh, solar energy. Tell us about uh, your connection to 1.5C LLC, and give us a little background, I guess, on why we should even be thinking about using solar power. Well, Gerard, you know, uh, we've been talking about climate change. Uh, My children have been expressly interested in it, so they uh, for their generation, and uh, so we've been looking for opportunities to get involved with it. Um, and after the inflation reduction passed last year in August sixteenth, uh, we started thinking there's got to be a way for us to become involved. So, thanks to our Jim Walker think tank that operates <laughs> there in Madison, uh, we started talking with Collier Simpson, who started brainstorming about ways that we could help Mississippi uh, take advantage of those opportunities, and then that led to other conversations with Don Moore and and I got my son Brady uh, who's not here and my son John Arthur here uh, who wanted to see how we could be a part of uh, making those opportunities real for Mississippi. Yeah, so um, the Inflation Reduction Act as we've talked about here on the program many times including included a provision that provides tax credits 
to those who would install uh, solar panels to power their homes. I don't remember the exact amount. I want to say it's something like 30% of the total cost. That's exactly cost. right. Okay. Gerard, you know that. And uh, and then there's also special advantages. Uh, so the advantages are for for so many aspects, and mm-hmm. so many opportunities. It's, it's just hard to fathom. But basically, the I asked them, I said, you know, what is the low-hanging fruit here where we could start to engage on uh, these opportunities? And they said the best opportunities are with schools, Public schools uh, and with municipalities who want to save money uh, and reinvest it in, in other things uh, by creating these solar um, uh, solar panels and using those to create and offset the energy cost. The other things that are out there that I really would love to get into and see Mississippi manufacturers do is to start uh, building some of these products that are now being delayed because of the shipping problems, that we're too dependent on the Chinese and uh, Asia for these products. And I'd really like to see Mississippi uh, businesses gear up for that because Mm. um, with the explosion that's going on around the uh, country, um, there are going to be shortages, and that's what's going to hold it back from from that, and I think it's a real opportunity for places like Taylor Machine Works in Louisville, Mississippi, or Howard Industries would be an obvious one. Um, and uh, there's just so many opportunities that could revitalize our economy. So, um, school. You mentioned schools, John. One of you guys. Tax credits wouldn't apply to them. They're they're public sector entities. They don't pay income taxes. So, the benefit to them seems to me like would be. If they could reduce their energy costs dramatically by installing solar panels rather than consuming power from the grid, which is, of course, fee-based, that that could constitute a pretty significant savings to operate a school. Sure. John Arthur can give us examples here of workups that we've had. Sure. But I will say that, you know, when we look at schools taking advantage of this, there are really three opportunities to finance these projects. One is uh, Blackstone is willing to underwrite it and then – uh, charge a lease or a uh, charge per kilowatt hour uh, hmm. for that to offset that cost, which is no cost to the public school, uh, just because they want the tax advantages of it. The other opportunity, of course, is for the schools, if they have funding, extra money, which is rare, uh, yeah. to pay for themselves. That's the best possible scenario, um, which will give them you know, free energy after they paid off the initial cost. And then, of course, the third opportunity out there is – um, is benefactors for our public schools, you know. So, for example, I, I mentioned Taylor Machine Works. You yeah. know, if Taylor Machine Works in Louisville, Mississippi, were to adopt Louisville public schools, they could take advantage of the great tax benefits um, of actually reducing uh, almost. In, it's almost like pure money in that it uh, just deducts that money from their tax bill at the end of the day. Okay, so let me make sure I get that. So. Uh, these are these are third party entities that aren't the end user of the solar panels, right. but because they're f- funding them, I Correct. guess financing Correct. them, funding them for a uh, a public school like that. That's exactly right. The credits passed to them. That's correct. Is that third right? party beneficiaries. And you've got some case studies, some use examples for us. Yeah, Is that right? <clears throat> yeah, there are two really good case studies. One's a private school as well as our own buildings downtown. So it looks like in the private school workup that we did, the initial savings were immediate. So because the cost of power is cheaper when going through a benefactor option or financing it, 
it said a discounted rate so meet on the electricity bill so immediately it's saving money and then if it were an entity that were to file taxes it would be filed the next year on the direct pay option if someone or a school were to basically buy it outright then yeah. the next year the government just sends them money to compensate for that and then there's um usually on average it's about 50 to 60 percent of energy savings and it can roughly the payback periods six to nine years and an irr is about 10 percent internal rate of return Mm -hmm. so all right so so a school can qualify for some sort of special funding there's some program this is different than the inflation reduction act tax credits though right these aren't tax credits because they don't pay taxes so there's some sort of grant program it's it's a called direct pay now it's a concept that's foreign to me it's just the first time i've really learned about it okay Uh, but they call it direct pay and um Somehow there's a provision that makes this exchangeable uh, yeah. where where private companies can get that money. I got you. So that's why they it's routed through the private companies to to um, essentially receive the, the tax benefits, the credits from the government that funds it for the schools. On that's right. Schools. Yeah, I must. I must. I feel compelled to say, you know, I'm not a tax attorney here. So, well, I understand. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm. I'm not either. I mean, I do know a fair amount about taxes, but. Um, but okay, that's fair enough. But it's not surprising that all that stuff's kind of deep and complicated. But smart people figure that out, and they and they leverage those opportunities. That's what you're doing here. That's what we're trying to help Mississippi do, and it's, I think, our way of sort of. Um, pushing this along uh you know unfortunately mississippi's like 50th in the nation uh on using this type of energy and um, hmm. that really shouldn't be we just have so many opportunities here and i fr- i'm afraid we actually could lose uh some of our businesses because of the competition of um of not fostering this, this okay. in mississippi and you also work with municipalities as well that's right. wastewater treatment facilities wastewater all treatments of are, which consume lots of power they are the second best beneficiary. The mm-hmm. thing, the reason we, we entered the uh, discussion here is just because there are already companies like our partner Verde Solutions here in, out of Chicago that are already doing this nationwide. I've been doing it for 20 years. Okay. The Inflation Reduction Act just increases the benefits to such an extent. And this is an easy place. But like I said, you know, the, the dream is to work with uh, some of our industries here in Mississippi to, to, to bring them the opportunity to build the these components that are needed. So, well. John Arthur, are you calling on the schools to introduce them, educate them about this program? Well, I would like them at least to be as informed as possible. Yeah. I think that knowledge is the key here. And so I dare say we, most of them don't know, honestly, until you perhaps enlighten them. I don't know if I'd enlighten them, but I'd like to teach them <laughs> something. Hopefully, I can be of some benefit here so yeah. that schools can make the most rational decision financially and any other way they want to look at it. So, it's technically speaking, that saves uh, local and state taxpayer money as well, because we're paying the power bills. Absolutely. It's our property taxes to pay the power bills for the schools, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, just uh, going back to the example uh, he made earlier about uh, this uh, a school that we did the work upon, um, you know, the, the total cost of and this is, you know, an average private school, which has less benefits than public schools. Because sure. of the way the the thing is structured, but you know the the actual cost was like three million. But after all the advantages, it was really about half. It was about a million and a half um, of that was the actual cost of it that a benefactor would actually uh, pay. 
but what they calculated is that we would have reduced uh, in one year that school would have saved one hundred forty thousand uh, in power bills, and over nine years they would have paid for the system. And the system is designed to last for twenty five to thirty years. I'm with you. Interesting. Well, how long have you been doing this before we go? How, when did you guys start this? We, when did we incorporate? So we incorporated about nine months ago. Okay. So is is there a way that folks should get in touch with you or can get in touch with you if they're interested? Tell us. Absolutely. The easiest way is to email me, john3 at 15celsius.us. You can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 15celsius. 15celsius. Okay. I didn't realize that's what the 1.5C LLC is how you're styled. You're you're formed up. Yeah, appreciate that. Well, we appreciate you guys coming in and tell us about that. It's a fascinating program. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank yep. you, George. We're coming right back in the Element Wealth Studios. Stay with us. Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studios, it is midday. Super Talk Mississippi. Appreciate uh, John Arthur Eves and Son for coming in the Element Well Studios here, appearing on middays to give us a rundown of that. That's that's fascinating. Truly is. So on the ceasefire text line, in my opinion, you can't claim to not want to default and then use defaulting the country as your leverage point. Well, I really don't I don't really see it as leveraging, hey, we're gonna default. I don't see it as that. We're gonna default if we don't get some concessions on spending. I, honestly, I see it as... Could it I, not be argued that the opposing team is doing the same? Yeah, it absolutely My way is. or the highway, or we're going to default, said the Democrats. It, it absolutely is, and that's the fundamental problem, is it not? So, much, so many times we've discussed this. We don't agree on anything. We just simply cannot agree. And that starts with having some sort of alignment on the proper role of government. We can't agree on that. Not even close. Not even close. And it's a disturbing situation because it just means we can't get anything done that truly would benefit the people of this country. And so a vacuum forms. And then what happens is, once again, the bureaucratic overarching agency complex starts dreaming up all sorts of crap. Like the EPA saying, 
60% of new vehicles in the country will be EVs by 2030 and 67. Actually, there's a couple of different takes on it. I saw 60, I saw 64, but 67% by 2032. That's less than 10 years. 67, that's two-thirds. I don't see it. I just don't see it. I think it's it's what and it's force. They force it by setting up these tailpipe emission standards, which are virtually untenable. The manufacturers have said we can't do that. Oh, I guess you're going to have to all go to all EVs. That's that's what that is. But you've seen the polls. Very few Americans say they want that. Like eight percent. I think it's the latest data I saw. Well, that's because it's just not – you're giving up something. You may be gaining in that you're not having to stop at the gas station and pay for expensive gas, but you're, you're giving up the convenience of, hey, but it only takes me like five minutes to fill my tank up, and I only have to do that every three, 400 miles. I'm just using averages. And I don't have to rely on knowing that there's going to be a gas station somewhere along my route. More than ever in this country, if you think about it, you don't have to be so careful with your planning and know where every charging station is. And and there are other inconveniences as well, but the, the market rewards value. And at this point, most consumers say, yep, just not of value to me to make that transition. When those issues are addressed adequately, and people say, okay, yeah, I can live with that. I I don't have to stop and charge. I'm continuously charging, or the charge period is no more than filling your tank up, and the range is such that I don't have to be so concerned about that. Just like you have to monitor your fuel gauge, same deal. When that's the case, and knowing that you can stop and if you have to charge, and it's, a, again, no longer than filling up your tank, and everything else is relatively equal or maybe there's some improvement, then they'll sell the heck out of them, I predict. But until then, it's just going to take a select few in the market. Well, the problem is the Democrat mindset is punitive. You're right. You are going to do without or else. There's no appetite to actually compromise and, I don't know, champion hybrids. You're you're right about that. you got to eat the whole elephant all at once. You can't do it one bite at a time. And they're back, you've seen this, they're back to pushing this idea of, of bugs for protein. And trying to really push hard on that. Insects, not meat, can't do that anymore. Cows, they're ruining the planet. It's just incredible. But it, it, you're right, though, and we've we've discussed that before. It's all about you got to do with less. Every the solution, to every problem is you just got to deal with less. Get over it and like it. Oh, but not me. Uh huh. Filet mignon for me, right? Bugs for you. Insects. That just drives people bonkers. I'm one of them. That drives me crazy. I think most people feel that way. Sam, but that also doesn't take into account 
the market. Right. For the longest time, lobster was fed to prisoners. It was considered trash food because chefs hadn't figured out that you have to keep them alive until cooking. So if you cook a dead lobster, you get some pretty nasty meat, and it's going to be bad for you. That's why they fed it to prisoners. Nowadays, lobster's top of the heap. Yeah. So if they force bugs on people, or <laughs> is the price of bugs going to go up? <laughs> it's crazy. It is crazy. Sam from Mount Herman. Hello, Gerard. I think the reason that Biden does not want to negotiate is because he knows this is all he has to get reelected by just keep giving money away or people thinking that he can somehow, quote, forgive a student debt, which any sensible person knows he does not have the power to do. And so just to catch you up on that, the, the current status is the courts are sorting that out. Does the president have the authority with the swipe of a pen to just wipe out debt held by those uh, who incurred it for an education as students and now owe it to the government? Can he just say, oh, you don't owe this anymore without the Congress weighing in? That's that's what's um, before the court. And so what McCarthy's proposing, so think about that. He's not even proposing cutting existing spending. He's proposing cutting future spending. The, the student debt is, uh, is being deemed spending, the forgiveness of it. It's the equivalent. So uh, no, no interest whatsoever in talking about that. And I don't think he will, honestly. But the way that the Democrats frame that, I mean, you just think, really, it's Armageddon. It's catastrophic. End of the world. Forgive student if we don't get this student debt forgiven. And if we don't leave that COVID money out there, if we return to 2022 spending levels and, and keep it there with a small 1% annual increase, if we require people to, I don't know, work to earn taxpayer-funded welfare benefits, can do that. Oh, there's only 10 million jobs open out there. Wow. It's totally incredible, isn't it? But that's uh, that's what we're hearing. This thing is really going to get some traction, though. And don't forget, also, we got the Trump tax cuts, the TCJA, coming to a close, the end of 25. Nobody wants to talk about it. But it should be because it's going to be a fight, no doubt about it. Setting up for it in the Congress, just to, you're going to get a new president. Hopefully we'll get a new president, but we're going to elect the president, several senators, the entire House. We're going to kick off a whole new class, January 2025. And at the end of that year, those tax cuts expire. That program expires. Your taxes are going up. What a battle, epic battle, that is going to be. This is why it's important 
that we have someone who wants to make permanent those cuts. In fact, we need to cut some more, in my view. Stephen Moore penned an article yesterday about Biden's tax plans and how it would affect folks with respect to taxing unrealized capital gains, wealth taxes, etc. It would kill Wall Street. And I'll tell you why when we come back. And if you don't think Wall Street's important to you, even though you may not be there, I would encourage you to really think about how our economy works. Coming right back. We interrupt this program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge. Huge. Huge news. Huge. Huge. Huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. you in the Element Well Studios. Stick with us because in the next segment we got some tickets to give away. Who's that for, by the way? Leonard Skinner. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ed in the Delta says, is there not some kind of constitutional issue with the government requiring you to buy a certain product? Talking about electric vehicles and the EPA's goal that uh, 60-something percent of all new vehicles sold in this country by 2030 would be EVs, and then depending on which report you read, somewhere between 64 and 67 percent 2032. So, Ed, they're not forcing you to buy it. It's not like health insurance, where if you don't buy it, the individual mandate, everybody remembers that, that was tested and upheld by the Supreme Court. But this is not um, a situation where the, the regulation would require Americans to buy an electric vehicle. It's just that they would implement regulations such that only electric vehicles could be sold in the country. They do have the power to do that. Well, the government does. Whether or not an agency does without congressional authority through a a properly enacted bill, that's another question that we've already seen tested with the EPA versus West Virginia last year, and this seems to me to rise to that same legal test. That's the question. Can the can the EPA implement such regulations so that only EVs would meet their standards for emissions is really what it boils down to. That's how they're uh, uh, um, implementing this, is with the tailpipe emission standards. The car makers say, we can't make fossil fuels vehicles that meet those standards. Or we, if we did, it'd cost so much, nobody'd buy them. Therefore, we're going to have to transition to EVs. So just pointing out, there's a distinction between forcing you to buy something, like forcing you to buy health insurance or paying a penalty. Which means it's going to require one of the auto manufacturers to file suit, and that suit to go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court to decide. That's right. That's absolutely right. Um, so I think, honestly, I feel like we are setting up for some possible legal battles here. 
But the manufacturers, there's no secret, they're all busy investing hordes of cash in the manufacturer conversion to the manufacturer of an all-EV product line. They've made that clear. That's our direction. That's where we're going. Well, of course, because the government's saying these standards are going to be that we're going to implement. You're going to have to do that. You're going to have to figure out a way to produce cars that meet those standards, vehicles that meet those standards, and the manufacturers have already come out and said, we can't do it. So, okay, guess that pretty much made that decision for us. We're going all EV. So it's it's kind of a, a, a disguised way, if you will. It's a veiled implementation of almost an ideology. It's a cult to a great extent. Everything on the left seems to be cultish-like. It's basically the auto manufacturer showing up with a black eye and saying, I ran into a door. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but... So that again, I, I the the main takeaway here is not so much EVs and the plausibility of EVs versus traditional fossil fuels based vehicles. It's that again, the agencies, the agency complex, the vast bureaucracy of the federal government—they run the place, not the Congress, not the president. The agencies do. This is just another. Stark example of that. The agencies do. It's um, Because they're protected from elections, for the most part. Right. But, you know, if there's any place we could benefit from term limits, that's where it is. What a radical thought that is. You shouldn't be in these positions of power within these agencies forever. There should be some rotation of the crops there. I think that does breed a lot of this problematic, these problematic rules and regulations. That's where it comes from. These career bureaucrats that that seize upon this power and they just push the envelope constantly. Now, make no mistake, they're getting tapped on the shoulder and talked to in the ear by the boss up there. But that this is how. Uh, this is how they uh, achieve their agenda. They do it through the agency complex. At Congress, remember, it, uh, Barack Obama told us, I got a pen and a phone. Well, he was talking about calling the agency people that run all these bureaucratic entities. That's exactly what he was saying. Heck, that was 10 years ago. I got a pen and a phone. If it's more than that, it was 2010, right after the midterms when he was frustrated because his agenda was put on ice, because he got soundly defeated, uh, the Democrats did, in the House. Because his agenda was hot garbage. It was. And the entire knew Democrat it. agenda for the last two decades has been hot garbage. And so he said, I got a pen and a phone. That's exactly what he was trying to tell us 13 years ago. And when Donald Trump, in fairness, was running for office in the 2016 cycle, when he was talking about draining the swamp, that's what he was referring to more so than the Congress, I believe. He understood and looked no further than the nuts in the FBI, right? 
that were texting each other and trying to figure out how to scheme to get Hillary elected. And, oh, my God, what if Donald Trump's elected? Remember all that? They're essentially working for the guy that they turned on. I mean, it's borderline treason. Uh, it certainly would have been, would have, it have um, compromised our safety and our security. But that's what we're talking about there. Really crazy. You can build roads with electric equipment. You can't farm with electric equipment. Well, I, I would. That's on the ceasefire tax line. So I, my response to that is never say never. It's we're really smart people. People are smart. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Don't underestimate the power of human innovation. Don't underestimate it. It, but again, don't underestimate the power of the market and how the market will react and receive new innovative goods and services. It will determine whether or not you succeed or fail. The way it should be, not government. That's the whole point here, honestly. It's not about whether or not EVs are practical. It's about the government sort of end arounding. They're not sort of. They are. They're end arounding. They're usurping the Congress which is where our laws are supposed to be made, to implement fairly significant rules and regulations that have a major impact on our lives. That's that's the issue. We didn't elect them. And I I certainly hope that the Congress, right now, all we have are the Republican-controlled House, keeps calling out those efforts by the deep state in those agencies to really act without authority, because that's what they're doing here. Um, I'm a big believer that we humans can solve lots of problems and are going to continue to innovate, and we keep inventing new tools that increase the cycles of innovation. That's fantastic, to produce a higher quality of life. So I, I wouldn't just... You can't think about solving problems based on what is available to us today. You've got to think about really, really smart people who are the ones who come up with these solutions to these problems that we can't see. Like, how do you build electric farm implements? Yeah, right now that just seems impossible. I suspect it is. but And therein lies the rub with an overarching, overreaching government. It stifles innovation. No it hamstrings entrepreneurs. It's the albatross around the neck of people trying to solve these problems. Right. Agree. This says can't log tree farm with EVs. Tree farming will be diesel or nothing. How do you know that though? You're you're dismissing the power of human innovation. Wonder how many times the Wright brothers were told, you can't fly, you can't build an apparatus that'll fly. I mean, throughout history, there are gazillions of examples of the world's innovators who were told, you can't do that. And they did. And now they're all commonly used goods and products in our lives. I mean, there was a time before diesel-powered vehicles where logging still occurred. That's true. Maybe it didn't have as much mechanical aid and assistance, but I'm not discounting human innovation. That's all I'm saying. 
And maybe it's not EV. Maybe it's maybe it's hydro-powered or hybrid something or another. Who knows? There's smart people out there constantly working on this stuff. Final segment on Middays when we return. Tickets to give away. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well Studios, it's Middays, Super Talk Mississippi. Final segment today. We're on the road twice this week, Thursday and Friday, of course. Um, but you got some tickets to give away. Oh, yeah. One of the best-selling groups of all time, legendary Southern rock band Leonard Skinner, are going to be at the Brandon Amphitheater in Brandon on Saturday, April 29th. It's right around the corner. Tickets for the show are on sale now at Ticketmaster.com, or if you're in the area, you can swing by the Brandon Amphitheater box office, but we're giving you a chance to win a pair of tickets to see Leonard Skinner. All you got to do is be the 16th person to text into the C Spire text line, that's 601-879-4395. Be the 16th person to text in, Tuesday's gone, and you'll win a pair of tickets to see Leonard Skinner at the Brandon Amphitheater on Saturday, April 29th. There you go. On the C Spire text line, uh, says, no way you can be productive with EVs, say, for tree farming and so forth. We will be back to horses and wagons. Won't be a market for them in the south, even if they do make them. No way to charge things in the woods. I, I just encourage you to think once again about stuff you can't even imagine. It's not even a twinkle in your eye today. How do you know they'll need to be charged? You don't. So that's just it. There's smart people working on stuff. You just can't you can't fathom. And God just made it that way. There's a sliver of the population that just possesses unique, extraordinary ability. And they're able to see things and create things and figure things out that most of us normal folks can't, and they're the the innovators on the planet. Society's always been like that, but they're a fraction of the bell curve of the population, and they come up with these ideas to solve these problems. We all benefit. The market pounces on it, and they get rich, and the left hates that, and it's because they produce so much value for society, and I'm beating this horse because it's, it still applies. It applies every single day, and it's just not not really respected, certainly in, in leftist ideology and leftist political philosophy. I'm looking at the Democrats' response to Kevin McCarthy's speech 
yesterday about working with the White House on the debt ceiling and his proposal to enact some spending cuts. And the title of the article from Democrats.org, McCarthy's speech, putting Wall Street over working families. Says, while McCarthy doubles down on using the United States economy as a bargaining chip, MAGA Republicans are coalescing around an agenda that would give the ultra-wealthy and big corporations a handout while gutting funding for Social Security. (laughs) What a bunch of lies. Medicare, health care, law enforcement, American manufacturing, and GOP plans could add trillions to the national debt. Like the trillions you just added? (laughs) That's just unbelievable how you could even say that. What the Democrat plan would do, by the way, if you lived in a high-tax state such as New York, investment, I don't have time to go through the math on this today, and and it's kind of hard to keep up with, but in the final analysis... Investment could be taxed as much as 86%. That's what would kill Wall Street. If Biden's plan were implemented and capital gains were taxed at ordinary tax rates, you're more than doubling that, plus the wealth tax, plus corporate income taxes going up. you got to pay that as well when you make an investment. You start producing a profit. You add all that up, and then inflation, don't forget about that, right? You invest something today, you get a return in the future. You've got an inflationary component of that, which reduces your return. Yeah, 86% over a 10-year period of time, sort of a typical holding period for an investment. That means for every $4 of profit you earn from the investment, 3 bucks goes to the government one to you. Oh, yeah. It's a heads-you-win, tails-you-lose sort of deal. <laughs> Golly. Unbelievable. You get a winner today, Rhino? We got a winner. Awesome. Well, that is all the time we have for today. We are out of it. We get back on it uh, again tomorrow from the Element Well Studios. We thank you so much for joining us. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.